Morena, and welcome to the Dawn Chorus for Thursday the 7th of December. I'm Bernard Hickey for the Kaka. This is my daily podcast uh, that goes out with an email newsletter uh, via the Kaka, which is a substack. I cover the political economy in Aotearoa and focus on housing affordability, uh, climate change and uh, poverty reduction. Yesterday, our 54th term of parliament opened. This is a a great affair of pomp and pageantry and, in theory, soaring rhetoric and uh, an indication that our leaders understand our problems and are focused on the solutions. Yesterday, instead, we got a speech from the throne. This is where the new government's priorities and plans are um, put in one place and uh, pronounced to the world by our uh, head of state, who in our case is the Governor-General standing in for the King. And uh, we heard that um, speech from the throne, and I'll put a link to it into the email that goes out with this podcast. Uh, Essentially it lays out the 100 day plan that the government has and it uh, includes all of the repeals and replacements of various policies including Three Waters, ERMA reforms, changes to the Reserve Bank Act, you've heard them all. Essentially it turns back the legislative clock to 2017 and beyond and has already stirred up an enormous amount of opposition. We saw that uh, day before yesterday with the beginnings of a hikoi uh, march uh, organised by Te Pāti Māori and uh, supplemented in the last day or so by a plan by King Tuhetia uh, of uh, Tainui to hold a, a national hui on in national uh, in January to essentially oppose the government's plans uh, on uh, um, the treaty and various other uh, issues to do with Te Ao Māori. Uh, we um, then heard an address and reply debate. This is where the leader of the government gives a speech about 20 minutes, followed by the leader of the opposition, Chris Hipkins. So it was Chris Luxon versus Chris Hipkins. You'd hope that in this uh, great moment of uh, national renewal, which is what happens when you start a new parliament, a three-year a three term of parliament, uh, that there might be some um, interesting uh, uh, rhetoric, ideas, uh, plans, and inspiring thoughts for the nation to gather around one way or the other. Uh, we didn't get that. The new Prime Minister accused the former Prime Minister of being an arsonist. The former Prime Minister accused the new government uh, of being the most shambolic in the history of New Zealand. In my view, neither of those speeches uh, from the leaders or the speech from the throne outlining the government's plans actually addressed the problems that Aotearoa has and it also Uh, didn't propose solutions that actually deal with these problems. Uh, We have a a real uh, uh, 
conundrum, you could call it, where our politics is a lot of noise and not much signal, where we get a lot of insults and attacks and what I call day-to-day -day static and a horse race to see who's in government, but we don't actually address the core issues. And what are they? Well, um, as you heard at the start, I'm very focused on housing affordability, climate change and poverty reduction, which in many ways are all the same story. In part, um, the housing unaffordability issue, housing unaffordability issue we have uh, causes many of the poverty issues and various other social and health and educational issues that we have. Climate change is dramatically changing the uh, not just the physical landscape, but the financial landscape um, under not just our nation, of course, but the the world. And uh, it is the central physical, financial and uh, challenge of our age. We'll spend the rest of our lives thinking about it daily, dealing with its consequences, trying to ameliorate the, the, the problems and uh, trying to come up with a global solution to it as we see at the moment with COP28. And then there's poverty reduction, which in many ways, if you can solve the housing affordability and climate change issues, you've, you've gone a long way to solving the poverty reduction issue. Just to remind you of the scale of the problems that we have, New Zealand has the most stressed poor renters in the world as a share of our lowest quintile of earners. That means an awful lot of people, upwards, I think, of about half a million, are in such stress every day from not being able to pay the rent uh, that they don't eat properly, uh, they are uh, so stressed as to be often mentally ill, um, they are not being educated uh, in many cases they're not able to work and um, this is a symptom of at least 30 to 40 years of various policies that have driven people into poverty and keep them there um, it is uh, an indication of how much our housing policies have failed but also large chunks of our welfare safety net so for example uh, about a half a million people are in rent stress every week. We know that there's about 100,000 people who are formally registered as homeless, uh, including around about 7,000 people who are currently living in motels and um, tents and cabins uh, and being paid for through the government's emergency accommodation issues. And uh, when you look at the number of children, there are 3,500 children living in motels at the moment. We also uh, have upwards of a billion dollars being spent on emergency accommodation. And we know that combined, emergency accommodation costs, uh, accommodation supplement costs, subsidised rents uh, through Conga Order are costing about $4 billion a year. So you could argue that's the public cost, at least, of our uh, housing shortages and the high costs of housing. 
Then there is the issue of climate change. Uh, we made promises at the Paris agreements to significantly reduce our emissions. We're going to miss those targets. Both major parties um, admit that and are planning to spend upwards of $20 billion on overseas uh, credits to um, uh, meet our obligations. Credits which don't exist yet, which many believe are fraudulent or fake, so-called hot air, and uh, which really tell you that our government is looking around the world, seeing that others are in the same position, they're going to miss their targets, and wondering if um, anyone will be held to account f for everyone missing their targets. Um, that's uh, disingenuous, it is um, cynical, and obviously doesn't address the core issue, we need to reduce our emissions dramatically. So there's the sort of broad outline of some of the issues we have. Our housing is too expensive, uh, we're producing too many emissions, we have too many people in dire poverty, in stress, uh, which is causing all sorts of economic and societal problems. One of the reasons for it is that we haven't invested enough in not just our people but our infrastructure over the last 30 years, in large part because we decided on a size of government relative to the size of our economy, size of the tax take relative to the size of our economy, and a range of taxes um, which were designed to be efficient and useful and largely are, except for one huge missing link, and that's a capital gains tax, which means that unique in the world, we don't have a tax on capital gains for companies or land or any other asset value. And we also don't have a wealth or inheritance tax, unlike most other countries in the world. This has severely skewed how the economy and our society works. It has uh, contributed to a massive widening of inequality, largely between those people who own homes and those who don't. It means that the value of our housing market is doubling every eight or nine years. It's currently worth $1.6 trillion, and the benefits of that go to less than a million people who own homes. It means now that if you want to own your own home, to start your own family in a stable, uh, functional way, uh, remembering that private rentals turn over every 18 months and it leads to all sorts of issues around uh, a lack of permanence, a lack of community, a lack of resilience. For example, more than half of the kids in South Auckland are by the age of 10 having gone through at least three schools. Uh, our transience is a massive problem where the kids keep getting bounced from home to home for all sorts of reasons and mostly because private rentals are too expensive, insecure, unhealthy and uh, um, people cannot put down any sort of uh, secure routes. Um, so those are our issues. We didn't hear any real solutions yesterday. Uh, one of the first things the government's doing is banning government departments from using te reo Māori to describe their own departments, even though um, the policies that led to that were started um, because of an Act of Parliament passed 
um, by the former national government supported by ACT and Party Māori, or the earlier version of it. So um, clearly those issues that I talked about aren't being addressed. So what could we do? Well, uh, the kaka is um, uh, really designed to uh, highlight these issues and then perhaps talk about some of the suggested solutions in a way that is safe and uh, doesn't uh, allow, allows a proper discussion because often at the moment in a, the way our political system works if you've got a, a suggestion which is outside the normal realms of discussion as a viable policy it doesn't get brought into the discussion because the main political parties who could fear a backlash from one interest group or another which means that um, our political debates are often quite tightly focused on the doable right now with the current political balance which often means doing nothing and uh, that means for example we haven't talked about how our tax system works how our system of um, house building how our system of uh, public transport subsidies and operations uh, all sorts of things the rules if you like of our society are not discussed they're not part of what we call the Overton window that's the area in public debate where it's um, seen as viable to talk about something uh, because anything outside that area is seen as not possible we'll never get through parliament is seen as unacceptable to those key people in the middle of the electoral spectrum the median voters and we're talking really only about a couple of hundred thousand people here who actually determine the results of elections and uh, so I thought it would be useful at this point, Thursday the 7th of December, the day when our Parliament perhaps should have talked about these issues and debated these solutions, to actually just throw them out there. For uh, subscribers to the Kaka, uh, uh, both the free ones and the paying ones, um, I appreciate the support of paying ones and often they ask for me to put out all of the work I do for everyone so that it can be shared and um, I appreciate that support and if you wanted to join that group of people who are providing that support by being paying subscribers I welcome it and actually I have a, a special offer an introductory offer of 50% off for the first year for those people who have not been subscribers before so what could we do how could we address some of these issues well I've got a a few ideas that fit together and that are consistent and that might move the needle. Firstly, we have to acknowledge that um, we are not investing enough in infrastructure, our businesses, ourselves, our people, our skills, um, and that uh, this has been an endemic issue for 30 years that we have effectively an infrastructure deficit of $100 billion with another $100 billion coming down the pipe because we underinvest in infrastructure and in business. That's because both sides of Parliament have essentially agreed that the government shouldn't be no larger than about 30% of the economy, that taxes should be no larger than about 30% of the economy, that budgets should broadly balance for most of the time, and that we shouldn't increase uh, the government's debt beyond about 20 to 30 percent of GDP. That's about a third of what other similar economies that we have um, 
have, and it's also uh, out of whack with the population growth that we have. So for the last 30 years, our planners, investors, governments have assumed that our population is basically stable, that we have an ageing population uh, that may grow maybe half a percent per year, mostly through net migration. Uh, however, for the last 20 years, on average, our population has grown by 1.5% to 2%. So we had assumed and we're planning for 0.5%, instead we got 1.5% to 2%. Now you may argue, how, how is that possible? Surely someone controls the migration settings and understands what's happening there. Well, we've never actually had a debate about what sort of population growth we want. The assumption is that we won't grow that fast and that not that many people want to come here. And that if people do, they're only filling temporary labour shortages. So that means that we won't give them a full residency, we'll give them a three-year temporary work visa, and the assumption is we'll kick them out after three years once the, the skills gap has been filled. Of course, that isn't happening. We've got m many hundreds of thousands of people uh, here. In fact, we have the highest proportion of people uh, working in our economy uh, on temporary work visas in the world. Um, it means that we've built ourselves a churn and burn economy where we suck people in and we spit out um, many of the people who have grown up here, are educated here, simply because they can't afford to, um, they don't see a future for themselves and a family, largely because housing is too unaffordable and they've been unlucky enough not to marry into the wealth or have parents with wealth to pass on down. So... Uh, we replace the people who are leaving with even more people coming because it actually keeps our current model alive. When you suck in lots of new people to demand accommodation, either to rent or to buy, that helps elevate uh, rents and certainly helps push up uh, house prices. By underinvesting in infrastructure, we also limit the amount of uh, supply of housing that's available and particularly land available for that supply. Uh, and so it's a short-term uh, and uh, sugar-fueled hit for our economy in a way that keeps debt low, keeps budgets running in surplus most of the time, doesn't provide the infrastructure funding for councils. Government, because of this 30% limit on the size of government, doesn't address it. And it means we have this problem now where councils say they can't fund the population growth and they're going to put up rates at double digit rates. So um, how do we deal with this? Well firstly both sides of parliament should agree on what our population growth should be or is going to be and accept that level, uh, plan for it and invest for it. In my view um, we should uh, accept and plan for population growth of one and a half to two percent. So that's exactly the same as what we've had for the last 20 or 30 years. But by acknowledging it and uh, thinking ahead, we can start to properly invest for it in our roads and railways and cycleways and pathways and schools and hospitals and piping systems and all of the things that um, allow us to live healthily and sustainably certainly with affordable housing. So one and a half to two percent. We should be debating that, planning it, understanding what it means and agreeing it. Others may say it should be naught or it should be three percent. That's fine. Uh, the 
accidental on purpose, accidentally on purpose agreement of our political economy is one and a half to two percent, but it should be conscious and it should be uh, understood what it means in terms of the infrastructure requirements and how we fund that. Now, just so you know, <laughs> one and a half to two percent uh, lifts New Zealand's population to between 17 and 20 million people by 2100. So that's 77 years away. Not that long, really. Most of the infrastructure we're building now will still be here. The houses will still be here. And uh, we should be thinking about that. But 15, 17 to 20 million people is way more than most would expect New Zealand to uh, be able to cope with. And it, it would also mean, for example, that we'd have to have at least 10 million people in the wider Auckland area, including the Golden Triangle of that includes Hamilton, Hamilton and Tauranga. So we're talking about, let's say, 5 million extra people in the Waikato Basin and uh, a good 5 million people in and around the Auckland Isthmus. Uh, it would be a dramatically different New Zealand. Now, you would argue, how are we, on earth are we going to get an extra, fit an extra people, extra 10 million people in? And uh, um, where are they going to come from? Well, we are a climate refuge. And as the planet warms towards and past three degrees by the end of the century, uh, living in the centre of the planet is going to be extraordinarily difficult. For some people, it will be possible to continue on um, air conditioning and building high enough so that they can avoid the immediate um, droughts and fires and floods. Uh, but of course it's the social and political and economic problems, the riots, the revolutions, the dramas uh, around, the tensions, pressures built uh, by that sort of um, uh, climate problem. And if you're looking for hints of what that looks like, just go to the Middle East and um, parts of Asia where, a um, lot to mention, Latin America, where um, the intense pressures of all of this drives you know, revolutions, wars, dramas. There are at least 2 billion people living in North and South Asia who will be subject to this um, grief. And about 100 million of those will be rich enough to have choices to immigrate or at least to have uh, uh, places for their families to live. Uh, it, just in case. That means about 100 million people will be looking to educate their families, buy second, third homes, uh, invest their money, um, have bolt holes and um, be ready to move. 100 million people. So obviously we can't <laughs> handle 100 million people, uh, but you can see that over by the year 2100 we'd get to that uh, 15 million people without too much trouble. But it does mean some decisions and uh, choices about how we manage migration, how we fund it, uh, and uh, who we want to come, what skills they have, how much capital they bring, those sorts of questions. So that's the first question. We have to decide how fast we want our population to grow. And everything flows from that. The second thing we need to uh, jointly plan for or think about is what is it that we want Aotearoa to look like? How affordable should housing and transport be? How many emissions should we produce? How many people should be in poverty? Uh, what 
is the level of productivity that we should have? Those sorts of questions. And um, there are a lot of there's a lot of detail implied in those questions, but there's some broad things that I think we should, and I suspect if you spoke to most people, they'd broadly agree. At the moment, housing and transport is far too expensive and emissions heavy in Aotearoa. I'd propose that we target everyone being able to afford a home, either to rent or to buy, in a way that means they don't spend more than 30% of their disposable income on rent or mortgages. And that they don't spend, they're not spending more than 10% of their disposable income on transport. So 40% with 60% of disposable income left over for other things like food and um, uh, leisure and uh, uh, all the other bits and pieces of life which make it uh, fun and sustainable. 40%. So that includes 30% for housing, 10% for transport. We're not there, of course. You'd have to dramatically lower the cost of housing, particularly for rent, to do that. That would imply enormous amounts of uh, social housing, public housing, affordable housing being built, and essentially swamping the market with supply and providing the rental accommodation that we currently don't have and that is substituted by a, a private rental market which doesn't work for people. It works for investors, just not for people. And how would you do that? How would you fund the building of millions of new homes that are uh, uh, carbon zero? So they're properly insulated, they're warm, they're dry, they're in the right place so that people don't necessarily have to have three cars uh, or even one. Uh, you can cycle, you can walk, you can use the buses, you can use trains if that's where um, where you have them. So how would you do that? Well, you could, for example, um, properly tax the unearned gains on residential land, which is where most of the wealth is tied up. So in the last uh, decade or so, the gains on that have been around seven to eight hundred billion dollars captured by about a million people and they haven't paid any tax on it. Uh, it means that they have skewed all of their activities to try to capture more of those gains and they've blocked political change that would um, mean that they don't get more of them or at least their kids don't get more of them. So um, we need to tax that wealth to pay for all of these things that we want. Now my view is that um, you could look at the things like a wealth tax or a capital gains tax I actually think a broad-based low-rate tax that is clear, fair, able to be administered quickly, would raise funds quickly, and which goes some way to capturing some of the unearned gains of the last 20 years. In my view, that's a residential land value tax of, let's say, 0.5% of the value of the land. Now, this is residential zoned land. So we're not talking farms or um, uh, uh, iwi land. We are talking residential zoned land, all of it. So not just uh, a rental property, uh, not just uh, um, um, batches or uh, second homes, everything. So one of the big issues we have is that owner-occupied uh, uh, homes 
uh, is where a lot of that value is based. And a lot of the people who own those homes are incredibly wealthy, at least in paper terms. And if you had a 0.5% tax on the residential value of land, not the value of the house, but the land, then uh, you immediately collect a lot of money to start building these homes, reorganising the transport system, paying for public transport, these sorts of things, to make for a just transition and to start reducing those housing and transport costs down to a combined 40%. So 0.5% residential land value tax. Now that's for the homes that are and the land that is occupied. The unoccupied land, i.e. the zoned land that hasn't been built on, that it's land banked, or the homes that are empty uh, for, let's say, more than six, six months of the year, uh, you could uh, have a multiple of that 0.5%. So let's say it's 1%, or maybe it's 5%. If that land is, for example, uh, zoned residential and hasn't been occupied for years and is serviced and ready to go, but land bankers are drip feeding it out, to make sure their profits are nice and high in the long run and they're not under any pressure to sell it. Um, that changes the incentives in our economy towards investing in businesses, investing in infrastructure, investing in things that you keep the capital gains from the growth of intellectual property, but it's not all about creating capital gains from land values. You change the incentives completely. Meantime, you start looking at all of the money that the taxpayer is paying to subsidise the current situation. So you could argue, how do we pay for this? Well, we know that a 0.5% tax would raise around about $5 billion in new revenue. Um, remember, there's about 4 to $5 billion in spending that we have at the moment on various uh, rent subsidies, emergency accommodation payments and accommodation supplements. So you've got about $9 billion that you could use to fund this. Now, obviously, you're not just um, hand-to-mouth funding it year by year. You're using that $9 billion to uh, pull forward a lot of that investment um, using bonds and servicing the bonds with that. Uh, You could easily service $200 billion in debt with $9 billion in extra revenue per year. Uh, You obviously wouldn't be taking all that debt on right now. You'd you'd, um, stretch it out. And what that does is change the expectations of everyone about the supply of housing and public transport that's coming into the market. It gives people a clear idea in the long run of whether they should build up their uh, infrastructure company, all of those things. So I would suggest that we look to change the way we do things uh, in that way. We also look at our welfare system which has a universal basic income for everyone over the age of 65, which actually is viable for those people who own their own homes. We need to make it the same payment for everyone under the age of 30, a universal basic income. So no clawbacks of extra income, uh, no uh, assumption that you're trying to rip off the system and need to be, you need to have money clawed back. It works for people over the age of 65. It means many people keep working and retain the earnings from their work. And in fact, they often pay for their own pensions from the taxes they paid on the work they do. Um, why couldn't it be the same for people under the age of 30, everyone under the age of 30, to receive that same payment? 
it means that you forgive three and a half billion dollars worth of debt that currently more than 100,000 people are laboring under and which will never be repaid, that creates stress every day. And uh, it means uh, changing the nature of our system, our welfare system, which essentially thinks of the uh, system as money being directed only to the deserving poor and an enormous infrastructure built to police the deservedness of that welfare system. I'd also ensure that education and health were publicly available. So that includes dental, it includes um, preschool education, and it is freely available to all. Because, in many ways, we already have that for the bulk of our health system, or at least the hospital system, and we have it for the bulk of our school system, just not for preschool or tertiary. And this can be paid for. We are a rich com- country. We're growing fast. We just need to ensure that the unearned wealth of the last 20 to 30 years, a, a trillion dollars, is properly shared and used to create a more uh, sustainable, enjoyable, functional society. The moment we're not talking about that, we're just yelling at each other and not making much progress. I'm Bernard Hickey. That was a bit of a special edition, which will be open to all and which you're very welcome to share. I'd like to thank uh, paying subscribers to the Kaka. Kakite anō. That was the Dawn Chorus for Thursday, the 7th of December. I'm Bernard Hickey for the Kaka. <laughs>